please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we'll begin in a moment in verse 17. That's page 1161 if you're using the Red Pew Bible. Ephesians 4, 17, page 1161. We have been for a few weeks now looking at how the New Testament addresses particular themes set forth in the book of Genesis And we've really been focusing on one theme, and that is the theme of life and death. What does the Bible mean by life and death? We saw that life is being in right accord with God, living as he intends us to live in a right relationship with him. So that when Adam disobeyed God at the tree in the garden, death came upon him immediately. That's physical death because death is not ultimately about our physical state. Life and death are ultimately about our relationship to God. And we saw that's why the Bible could talk about the idea of eternal life and eternal death. An existence for all time out of accord with God. His wrath poured out against those who are not, who did not live as he commanded. We saw that that eternal life, that life in him, must come from him. That we must be born from above, born again, just as we had nothing to do with our physical birth, so we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. But that is a gift from God. We have explored how that life will be transformed. We saw how it came through Christ how Christ creates a new humanity separate from the humanity that came through Adam, and that how Christ's humanity will conclude in a transformation of our lives. We saw last week in particular the transformation of our bodies so that they will be made spiritual bodies, so that we will be fitted for the new Jerusalem, for eternal existence with him. Physical still, but spiritual in that way. Now, it is a common thing among Christians to wonder about this life. Do I have it? Do I really have that life? And often we find ourselves looking at the wrong places for assurance. We look to the time that we did such and such in vacation Bible school. Well, I did raise my hand that summer at vacation Bible school, so yeah, I've got the life. I went forward at this crusade or in this camp meeting, so I've got the life. But that's really not how the Bible tells us to judge whether or not we're alive in Christ. That's not the guidance the Bible gives us for knowing whether or not we are alive. It sets forth a very different set of criteria. We're going to look at that those morning, this morning. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. So that if you want to know whether or not you really are alive in Christ, and if you want to know how to live that life, you have to know God's word. So hear me now, hear God's word now, and follow along with me as I read Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Spirit of God, reveal to us this your word. Make it plain to us. Let us see what it says. Let us respond to it rightly. Let us live in accord with your word. We pray this because you have given us Christ so that we might come to you in prayer. We pray this so that we might reflect Christ rightly in our lives. We pray this for the glory of his name. Amen. So I ask you this question, how do you know you're alive? I'm not trying to be trivial or weird about it. It's a simple question. How do you know you're alive? I'm also not trying to uh, uh, be the the freshman philosophy professor. This isn't an abstract, mind-bending exercise in how do you know that you're not a figment of somebody else's imagination. That's not what we're getting at here. Let's just assume, let's set all that aside and assume that's not the situation. How do you know you're alive? More than that, how did you become aware of it the first time? Way back when, how did you know you were alive? My guess is most of us don't really stop to think about that question because it's so fundamental. It's so basic, it's so self-evident, it's so obvious that I'm alive that I don't need to defend it or prove it. But how would you? How do you know you're alive? I've mentioned recently in this sermon series about life and death that as a high school biology teacher, I would often open up the semester talking about the characteristics of living things. What constitutes life? You probably remember some of these from your own high school biology class. Living things are organized. They're made into cells, which are made into tissues, which are made into systems, which are made into, you know, I mean, organs, which are made into et cetera, et cetera. Living things, uh, uh, they maintain homeostasis. They get rid of waste. They keep a constant body temperature, those sorts of things. Living things use energy. They grow. They respond to stimuli. They reproduce, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a broad definition designed to incorporate and and, and include all forms of life here on earth. We're asking a, a much more narrow question. How do you know you're alive? How would a youngster know that he or she is alive? And I'm going to guess that as a child, you were not interested in whether or not you were made of cells. You knew you were alive apart from that. You didn't care whether or not you were growing or taking energy or maintaining homeostasis, and you surely had no interest in reproduction. How did you know you were alive? 
We've been talking a lot about life and death in this little mini-series we've been doing, as our, uh, particularly with life or death with regard to our uh, relationship to God. And so this question of how you know you're alive is not a trivial question. If I'm alive in Christ, how do I know? How can I be sure of that? Because it's a big deal. And if I'm not alive in Christ, well, then how do I know that as well? If I have been born merely of Adam and not been born again, how do I distinguish that? But if, in fact, I have been born from above, how can I be sure of it? You see, this question of how do you know you're alive is an important question. It's one of assurance, of grace, of peace. Answering it enables us to live confidently, to live in a restful state, to live with assurance and peace. Ephesians 4.17 and what follows it is one of several places where the New Testament takes up this question. And in fact, all of those different places, the New Testament, and we're going to look at some of them later, all the different places where the New Testament addresses this question all say basically the same thing. New life is characterized by a new life style. New life is characterized by a new life style. Just like a a, a child assumes he's alive because he acts like mommy, you know, you take the child the first time at whatever age you do, you take that child to their, their first funeral. Great-grandma dies. The child may not think in these concrete, explicit statements, but something inside registers. I'm more like mom than I am like great-grandma. The one in the casket there, yes, I bear some resemblance to her, but there's a big difference between what I am and what she is now. I'm alive, she's not. I'm alive because I'm like mom. This question of how we know we're alive. And so it's interesting how Ephesians 4.17, where it, since we're not going through the book of Ephesians, so let me give you a little bit of context. That opening part of Ephesians 4, in fact, I'm going to guess if you look back, most of your Bibles, if you look back to the top of Ephesians 4, probably has a heading similar to mine. Unity in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and in fact, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, both take up this topic of unity, of how we should be similar to and like one another and agreement with one another and uh, uh and, and not at odds with another, one another. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 are that beautiful summary of the gospel. And then Ephesians 2, 11 has that word, therefore. And it begins to talk about some of the, sorry, so it begins to talk about some of the outplaying of the gospel in our lives, and unity is one of those things. So it's interesting here in 4.17 that Paul now says we shouldn't be like we shouldn't be associated with. We should be distinct from a particular group. We should be united with Christ in his church. We should not any longer be united to this world. So Paul says here in 4.17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now Paul is not necessarily calling them to be Jews. For in fact, he's writing to a church that was predominantly Gentile. 
most of the believers in Ephesus were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They had come out of a pagan background. So why is he telling them not to be like Gentiles? Now remember, again, it's not the call to be Jews. For if we flipped over to the book of Galatians, we'd see how Paul rails against those who want to impose Judaism on the church. I shudder to think about the language he uses there. It's powerful language. You want to promote circumcision among the church? I wish you'd go all the way and cut it all off. Makes you shudder. He couldn't be more plain or blunt about the Judaizing of Gentiles. So he doesn't want these people to become Jewish, but he doesn't want them to be like Gentiles either. What is going on? What is he, in fact, saying? Well, Gentiles, not having God's law, walked in a manner of evil. They walked in detestable practices. They were outwardly very evil. Now, Jews had all sorts of inward problems, and Jesus routinely exposed those. But Jews at least had a great deal of outward righteousness. Recall that Jesus himself, when he's speaking to the Twelve in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It was also Jesus, while he was addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he warned them about how you you guys go to great lengths to tithe every herb in your garden. You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you ignore justice and mercy. But do you remember what he did? When he says to them, you must be concerned about the weightier matters of the law, he then tacks on without foregoing the other. Jesus didn't say the little things didn't matter. He said, you can't have the little things without the big ones. He wasn't saying you shouldn't tie the herbs of your garden. He was saying that you can't be merely outwardly righteous. And when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, the problem wasn't the whitewash. The problem was the death inside of them. The whitewash wasn't what he was concerned about. Not once did Jesus ever rail against obedience to the law. And in fact, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. To live it out. To obey it myself. Jesus wanted his followers to have both an inward life and an outward life. An inward life turned toward God, in submission to God. And then outward goodness would flow from that. So now Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, you learned Christ inwardly, so you cannot continue to have the outward appearance of Gentiles who don't have the law. Rather, if the inward life is real, it will, it must, eventually spill out into your outward life. Eventually, you will take on the traits and characteristics of the new life. 
So the goal of these verses is to convince us to turn away from our old selves as we were in Adam, as we were as mere Gentiles, and to turn toward the new life, the new Adam, Jesus. But did you see the underlying causation? Did you notice in this passage how that's going to happen? Notice the central importance Paul Paul places on knowledge. Look at the passage. The Gentiles whom Paul is using as his foil are darkened in their understanding. They were alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. By contrast, look down to verse 20, where the focus is on having learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you were taught in him. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Five references to the mind, to cognition, to knowledge, to the way we think. There's phenomenal stress in this passage upon what goes on in our brains. And of course, these these verses here in Ephesians bring to mind the the well-known passage in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. But be transformed. And how in Romans 12 does Paul tell the church in Rome to be transformed? By the renewal of your mind. And of course, in the book to the church in uh, in Philippi, the, the book of Philippians, Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. To the church in Rome, to the church in Philippi, and here in the, to the church in Ephesus, and by the power of the Spirit to this church here today, right here gathered in this room, we're being told, that our minds must be fed God's word. Our minds must be nourished with doctrine, with truth, with Christ. We must learn, think, ponder, yes, meditate on the things of Christ and his word. The church in America today, or at least a large subset of that church, is seeking an emotional Experience. We want to feel something, be moved by something. But that's not the Holy Spirit's recipe for a changed life. Now, if we want to be truly changed, we need to think differently. We need to reprogram our minds according to the word of God. Now, why? Why is that the case? Why is the mind important to this question of the new life in Christ? Was the Holy Spirit not aware of the power of emotion? Did he not know that you could really move people emotionally? So why does the Spirit draw so much attention to this uh, this boring, cold realm of the intellect and not give more attention to the warm, inviting realm of emotion? Let me ask you a simple question. You ever spent time around a little, little child, an infant? You ever spend time with a baby? Babies don't have a whole lot of emotional range. They pretty much come into this world with two emotions. I'm angry. I want to eat now. I don't care what you're doing, Mom. Feed me. They have anger 
And they have happiness. Oh, my belly's full. My mommy loves me. That's it. They don't get into the drama of the bachelorette. They don't care a hoot about those things. They can't possibly comprehend that. They don't even cry watching Old Yeller. Now, what kind of hard beast doesn't cry at Old Yeller? I mean, come on. Because they don't know how to think yet. Emotions flow out of our thoughts. Or at least that's how we were designed to be. And so it is in the renewing of our minds that we will come to respond emotionally to our God. Babies do think, though. Watch that same baby that doesn't have a whole lot of emotional range. They think. Even the tiniest of babies eventually notices these wiggling things at the end of their arm. And eventually they begin to realize they can control those things. And their minds begin to learn. They begin to develop an understanding. You know, they they begin to realize, I wonder how many times I can throw the spoon on the floor and mom will keep picking it up. Let's go for a new record this morning. I think I can get mom to pick it up 20 times. They think. They learn. Their minds are at work. Eventually, they see dad walking around the house and they say to themselves, I can do that. I can walk. <laughs> Speaking of watching dad, we, uh, one of our children, one day we, we looked down the hallway and he was taking a knife and sticking it into a butter knife. We didn't give them sharp knife. A butter knife and sticking it into an outlet. <clears throat> Because earlier, Dad had taken a screwdriver and done some work on an outlet. Imitation. They think. They see it. They can be, they can be led to copy and that. And at some point, they begin to learn emotions. I remember when our oldest child was learning to use emotional manipulation. He wasn't very old. I'm going to six months. Becky will give you the accurate story later. And we quickly realized that he was crying at night, not because he was hungry, not because he was wet, because he was alone and didn't like being alone. And he would cry, and one of us would get up and go into his room, and all of a sudden everything was fine. He was perfectly happy. He had learned how to use emotions to manipulate the situation. So they do learn emotion. Emotion is part of our life. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have emotions, but Paul here is, is saying it begins with learning. We have to learn to live our new lives in Christ. Just as you learned to live your life in Adam, so you have to learn to live your life in Christ. That's why Paul speaks about understanding, about knowing, about ignorance, and about being taught, and about our minds. Just as an infant learns through her mind, so she will have to learn to live the new life in Christ. And again, it's not that emotions don't matter. It's just that we've got to relearn those as well. We've got to learn new emotions, new emotional responses. In our old selves, in our old lives, we might see a picture of that grandbaby on Facebook and think, oh, that's so cute. My grandbaby is so adorable. And in our new lives in Christ, we begin to think differently. We begin to go, huh, my grandbaby is cute. 
But on this occasion, in this picture right here, she's defying her mother. She's being disobedient. That's not cute. That's sin. My grandbaby is a sinner. My grandbaby needs Jesus just like I needed Jesus. And our emotions change because our thinking changes. We respond to this world differently. So Paul says now, think about Christ. Um, you know, it's interesting. Paul in Romans 8 makes a reference to Christ as the firstborn among many brothers. The author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus being willing to call us his brothers. Now think about that. If Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, if Jesus is willing to call us brothers, have you ever stopped to think about Jesus as your brother? And it really does make sense. If God is our father, if we have become part of the family of God, and Jesus was God the Son incarnate, then it is, even if the Bible never specifically referred to him as one of our brothers, that would be the conclusion we would have to draw, is that Jesus is our brother. But Paul and Romans and the author of Hebrews both explicitly make that clear. He's our big brother. He's the firstborn into this family, this new line of humanity, this new family of God. He's the older brother. He's the big brother. Now, on behalf of all of you younger siblings out there, let me apologize for older siblings. As an older brother, I tended to be too much of a tease. I tended to be too hard on my younger siblings. But that's not our big brother, Jesus. He's not like that. I may have picked on my younger siblings. I may have mocked them. But that's not what Jesus does to us. Rather, he takes all the good of an older sibling and multiplies it infinitely. So that if you're a younger sibling, you may reflect on and remember how this was. You wanted to be like your older sibling. You wanted to do what they did. They got to ride a bike. You wanted to ride a bike. They got to stay up later than you stayed up. I wonder what they're doing out there while I'm not sleeping in here. You wanted to be like that older sibling. Drew, our youngest, the youngest of our four children, he was about 10 years old before we have the very first photo of him that is bruise-free, bump-free, stitches-free, black-eye-free. He was always chasing his two older brothers who were four and eight years his senior. If they climbed a tree, he wanted to climb that same tree. If they did a trick on their bike, he wanted to do the same trick on his bike. Whatever they did, if they jumped off the fifth rung of the tree fort ladder, then he had to jump off the fifth rung of the tree fort ladder. There's a reason the boy was covered with bruises and bumps and scabs and stitches until he was 10 or 12 years old. Because he was constantly trying to do what his older brothers did. And that's Paul's point here in Ephesians. If you've truly met Christ, if you've truly been adopted into the family of God, if you know Jesus of Nazareth, then you're going to want to be like him. You're going to want to mimic him. You're going to want to chase him around God's world. 
You're going to want to do what he's done. How did James talk about this issue in our New Testament reading? That the outward good works are the manifestation of the inward life. Just as a body without breath is dead, you use breath to tell if a body's alive, so you use good works to judge if the faith is alive. What's on the inside will spill out on the outside. How did John say it in his first epistle? We know that we have come to know him when we walk as Jesus walked. Peter, in his second letter, he talks about the idea that we can make our election sure. We can be sure of our salvation. How? By being in obedience to Jesus. And of course, Paul here takes up that same theme. John and Peter, two of Jesus' closest friends during his life here on this earth, James, his half-brother, and the Apostle Paul, Mr. Influence in the New Testament, all come to the same conclusion, that what is on your inside will spill out to your outside. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And of course, Jesus' own personal testimony of obedience was about his relationship to the Father. I and the Father are one. I do nothing on my own, but only the will of him who sent me. Jesus did what his father did. Jesus did what he saw in his heavenly father. He imitated God. Remember, we were created to bear God's likeness. We were created to be like God. And that's what Jesus did as a human here on earth. And thus, as our older brother, that's what we should be seeking to do. You know, in the good news about Jesus, he's not like Scott. He's not an older brother who's going to make fun of you when you fall off your bike. He's not an older brother who's going to mock your attempts to imitate him. He's not harsh when you fall down for the 15th time. He's not going to leave you crying and go off and play with his Friends, yes, I was a bad older brother. Jesus is, not was, Jesus is a man of his word. If he told the disciples to forgive 70 times 7, do you not think he will do the same for you? When you chase after him in righteousness and you fall down. He's going to help you up. When you pursue him in good works and fail, he's going to brush you off, bandage your wounds, tell you he loves you, and help you. How do you know you're alive? It isn't about birthdays. Dead people have birthdays. It's not about birth certificates. Dead people have birth certificates. Being alive 
is affirmed in the activities of life. You knew you were alive as a kid because you acted like the living people around you. Your life was affirmed without even thinking about it because you walked like mom walked. You talked like dad talked. You played Barbies like your older sister. You rode your bike like your big brother. You did the things of life. And so it is with the new life we have in Christ. With your mind, you read the scriptures. With your intellect, you pray. Through reason, you absorb sermons. And as you pour over the gospel accounts, you meet this older brother, Jesus of Nazareth. And you uh, see him being kind to the downtrodden. You see him standing up to dishonest politicians, even the conservative ones. You see him caring about the sick. You see him caring about the lost. And you follow him. You want to be like that. You want to chase him around the playground of God's creation. And you become more and more like him. That's Paul's point here. Continuing to walk in this life as though the Gentiles, the lawless ones, continuing to walk like that, well, that's not going to be the case if you've learned Christ. And how does he say it? Assuming that you did. In fact, learn him. You see, Paul is trying to get us to chase our older brother. And of course, the, the, the consequence of this is simple. If you don't have that desire, if you don't want to be like Jesus, if you're saying to yourself, it isn't worth the pursuit of my older brother, then you're not part of the family. The natural thing is to want to be like that older brother. The natural thing for those who are alive in Christ is to want to live like Christ lived. And if that's your desire, not your success, when I'm measuring your success, if that's your desire, if that's your urge, if that's your constant plea, if you are constantly frustrated with your sin, frustrated with your failings, frustrated with the ways that you don't live up to being like Jesus, that's the affirmation that you're alive. You really are chasing him around. You really are trying to be like that big brother. It's not success that proves you're in the family. There will be successes. There will eventually be victories. The Holy Spirit is killing the old man in you. And through sermons, through Bible study, through prayer, through the church, through fellowship, the, the Holy Spirit is feeding the new man in you, nourishing him, strengthening him, so that this tug of war, eventually he begins to win more often. Eventually the new you in Christ wins more of those battles than the old. But it's not until glory, it's not until that transformation that we read about last week that it's going to be over. The very struggle you're having with sin is the affirmation that you are alive in Christ. Chase that big brother. He will help you up out of the dirt. He will 
take care of your skinned knees, even the more serious injuries, he will deal with them because he's a good big brother. He's a loving big brother. He wants you to enjoy the new life you have in his family. How do you know you're alive? You act like the living ones. That's it. That's the affirmation of life. That's the assurance of salvation. That's what puts you at rest. After a long day of struggling with sin, you can sleep in confidence. Because only the living ones even struggle against sin. Those who are dead in Adam don't give a hoot about sin. And your big brother is looking out for you and will take care of you. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a wonderful older brother. Thank you for being a a faithful one whom we can pursue, whom we can chase around. Thank you for being one who is patient with our shortcomings, patient with our failings, willing to help us up off the ground when we fall down. Thank you for all the confidence we can have in you. Thank you also that we don't have to live this life in doubt about the next life. We don't have to live this life uh, wondering if we've believed enough. We don't have to live this life wondering if we've done enough. The fact that we have a desire to be like you is the assurance that we are in you. That you have made us alive, that you have called us to be your own. We rejoice in this good news. We celebrate this hope. We thank you for it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.